0: Well, hello and welcome to another edition of the 7 Innings Podcast. Uh, glad to have all of our softball friends with us again for another go-round. We'll get you up to date of all the latest news around the softball world. we got a real special guest today on the program. Billy Jean King is going to join Jess Mendoza and have a wonderful conversation. As you know, our cast of characters changes from week to week, so let's get you caught up. I'm Beth Mowens. We also have Michelle Smith, Amanda Scarborough, Jessica Mendoza, and Caleb Bro. But since we're all buds here, that's Bimo, Bro, Scarborough, uh Doza, and Smitty. And we are set to go. Follow along on your social media at seven innings podcast. Make sure you get your lineup card. And here's what we got in store for you today. Starting to sound a little bit like a broken record, but that's how good Oklahoma has been this season. We're gonna tussle in Tallahassee. Tell you, why three is the magic number, and it's getting closer to tournament time. So, a little RPI not just the capital I, like the numbers and the analytics that the selection committee will go through, but also that all important I test. What are we seeing out there on the road to the women's college world series? Let's jump right in with another record broken for the Oklahoma Sooners, ladies. They continue to roll 36 and 0, that means it's the best start. In NCAA softball history to a season, big test coming up this weekend against the Texas Longhorns on the road. Smitty, all things Oklahoma, what's impressing you the most so far? Well, everything,
1: (laughs) you know, and I think so you asked the question, (laughs) is it too much of a good thing? I don't think so. You know, I, I think people are intrigued by this team. Patty Gasso has talked about her club being hungry for more. Winning is like an addiction, so that the more they win, the more they want to win. They want to keep breaking those records, and they're doing it, really, with all facets of the game because they're just strong in every single area. Their offense has been outstanding. They're hitting almost 400 as a team. As a team, they scored 43 innings and just 15 innings of play against Texas Tech. They were just outstanding. An 11-0, 2-11-0 run rules, and then a 21 nothing run rule on the third game of the series but the numbers are staggering y'all it's hundred home runs for the team Uh, you've got four hitters with double digit home runs and how about this stat they have 182 walks to just 94 strikeouts on their offense and even when they do put the ball in play they put it in play hard they've created 41 errors uh, that their teammates, or excuse me, their opponents have, have hit uh, or, or created. So it's, ju- it's just unbelievable. And, and then you, t- you talk about how good their offense is. What about their pitching? Their pitching has been outstanding. How about an ERA of a .60 for the entire staff, 21 shutouts, 310 strikeouts to so just 55 walks? I mean, the, the numbers are just completely staggering. Um, but I do, sometimes you, you bring up the question, is it too much of a good thing um, if you know every time that Oklahoma steps on the floor, excuse me, the field, that they're going to win. Um, I don't know. It's intriguing, um, but I think they're going to be challenged here against Texas, and I'm looking forward to that. And then, of course, Oklahoma State and Bedlam. Mm-hmm.
2: Michelle? Michelle, I feel like when you look at the numbers, like they are staggering. I mean, you just whopped out about like 10 different shagging stats there, like all on Oklahoma, and we could probably list about 20 more. (laughs) The ones that I look at, like what did JT Gasso do in that shortened season of 2020? Because I went back and looked at their numbers prior to the shutdown in 2020, they were hitting 319. Still good. They were scoring six and a half runs a game. Still good. Their OPS was 947. But you look to see that jump that they took in 2021 and have brought into 2022 is next level type stuff. They are now hitting 405, scoring over 10 runs a game. Their OPS is well over 1,200. So these, this jump, like what did he do? What did he learn? How, how has he helped his hitters in a different way that nobody else is doing in the entire country? That's what I want to know. And when you ask and think about, like, is this good for the game? They're undefeated. I think it will make our game better as other coaches, other offenses, other teams are going to have to step up and figure out what Oklahoma is doing to try to catch up to them and try to replicate it to grow our entire sport.
3: Yeah, sorry. No, I I, I think that you talk about the confidence level of this Oklahoma team and how much they feed off of each other, but how hard it is for an opponent to come in Only four times this season has Oklahoma scored less than five runs. Only four times. So if you're an opposing offense, you go into the ballgame and you say, we're going to have to put up nine runs a game. They're averaging 9.8 runs a game. That's demoralizing. To know that you have to be almost perfect as an offense to go up against the Oklahoma offense, to go toe-to-toe with them, I think that sets up the pitching staff for Oklahoma so well because, again, the weight of the world is on the offensive shoulders of the opponents to be able to try and hang with Oklahoma and they they just start in a hole already.
0: What, What you got Jess real quick. Yeah I mean and I think about
4: this record that they're breaking. I mean you think about the great teams of the past you know those UCLA teams back in the 90s the late 80s Lisa Fernandez teams. I mean this Oklahoma team I feel like what they are doing differently as we see softball better today than it's ever been as far as across the country more competition. Is exactly what Smitty just said. This team defines what every coach talks about and that they are competing with themselves at this point. They are constantly pushing that narrative, pushing themselves to continue to win when they absolutely dominate teams. And I compare them to the great teams of the past that still were losing games as they went along because there were still weaknesses. Oklahoma is redefining that in a way that, honestly, when you look back historically, it's never been done.
0: Yeah, I love the conversation of uh, around the softball world. How long can they go undefeated? Can they run it and get into the postseason undefeated? We will see with some big games still to come. Moving on in our lineup card, time to tussle in Tallahassee. I don't know if we'll be able to do it as well as the Hokies and the Knowles did. Uh, so we had the surprise, uh, easy go of it for Virginia Tech in the opener. Then the crazy offensive numbers in game number two, where there was a nine in, uh, nine run inning and a ten run inning from both sides, and, and then Scarborough, all the illegal pitches that came into play in uh, that third game of the series. But Virginia Tech's hanging on to that top spot in the ACC. Amanda.
2: Yeah, I know it's like each game had its own identity, but I feel like we learned so much about Virginia Tech. Like I think that we learned more about Virginia Tech than what we did about Florida State. I think that both teams are women's college world series teams if they perform to their ability in the postseason. But the one thing that stuck out to me the absolute most was the Virginia Tech offense. I texted I texted Pete DeMore after their game on Saturday whenever they put 23 on the board. And I said, what kind of offense are you guys running? The spread offense, the option, West Coast offense. Like, they are putting up <laughs> insane numbers against a very good Florida State team. They have good pitching, Florida State does, with Cat Sandercock and also Daniel Watson. But to me, the Virginia Tech offense, like, stood out the most because they've not played quite like what we saw last weekend the entire year. They hit seven home runs. They scored 35 runs in three games. 28 of them, by the way, were earned runs against a very good pitching staff. So they only struck out seven times. So I felt like this offense for for Virginia Tech was just on a completely different level. And that, to me, honestly, is what I personally learned the most from this series. Because we knew that Keely Rochard could take a lot of innings. And I know that we saw that, too. And somebody else, I'm sure,
0: will hit on that. You know, man, if they keep swinging like this, you're gonna you're gonna need to talk about basketball score offense. They're they're running the Princeton offense if they're putting up 40 or 50 <laughs> uh, the next time out the way they were swinging it. Then we go to that third game, guys, and they had the lead. They were going for the sweep, and then things really took a turn with the illegal pitches uh, called on Emily and and I think Michelle we're really just looking for some consistency when it comes to this and I thought Danielle Lori our Dilo with the Velo buddy did a good job of explaining it in game you know it could be called a whole lot or maybe it's time to just get rid of it and do what they do internationally and let everybody be on the same playing field
1: yeah Bimo that really is the question is what do we do with that rule and are we then rewarding pitchers that maybe haven't learned to pitch correctly and have both feet up in the air and so obviously you cannot crow hop you cannot replant, Um, you can't step outside of the pitching lanes. Those are just a a couple of the different ways you can be called for an illegal pitch. This one happened to be where Emma Lemley's both of her feet were actually off the ground. And so, you know, the question then becomes, look at a Gabby Plain who pitches at Washington. She goes back and plays for Australia, where internationally, you're allowed to leap. Both feet can be up in the air. Then she has to come back to the NCAA rules and learn to keep that pivot for the back foot on the ground. And she's been able to transition and do that. I think what's most important is that if you know you're going to be called for early in the season, and she was early in the season against Wisconsin, her very first start, is that you have to make changes as a pitching coach and as a a coaching staff. You have to be able to help your athletes so that when they're in this situation later on in the season, they know how to make adjustments. And I think yet on her rise ball, she might be a little bit higher off the ground on pitches, lower in the zone. She may not be as obvious and, and, and as far off the gun. That's MLM Lee I'm talking about. So, you know, we are at a conundrum with our sport. We have to figure it out. We either need to change the rule or we need to enforce it consistently. And as to your point, it's like everything around pitching, it has to be consistent and it's the strike zone. It's the pitching rules. I think we really need to go back to the desk and figure out, Hey, what's best for the sport? What's best for our athletes. And you know, it's going to be really important to figure that out quick. Amanda, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think that it's just so hard to call a rule like that consistently because an umpire is going to see something different. The lighting could be different on the field to where there might be a shadow under the pitcher. So he can't 100% identify if a drag foot is off the ground and or if it's replanting. So it puts the umpires, I think, in a very, very tough position to be able to make this call because I think that, I mean, I'm not an umpire, but I I feel like if I was, I would want to know 100% that I'm seeing air between a pitcher's drag foot and the ground before I called an illegal pitch. So I think asking them to call it consistently is so hard to define what that actually looks like because pitchers will come off the ground Not exactly the same. Some will be a few inches. Some will be a centimeter. All of those are considered illegal. But as an umpire, how do you call that consistently? And I just wanted to echo one point to you, Michelle, that you said is that why are coaches at the youth level, if we know that it is an illegal pitch, letting pitchers get away with it to when they do get to college, they're still illegal. They have to find a way to work on it to become legal and go with the rules and be able to know how to fix it in game.
0: All right. Well said about the uh Tallahassee tussle and, uh, you know, continuing to figure out ways to improve the game and, and make it even better than it already is today. We are just underway. Our seven-innings podcast still to come. You know we got to have Billie Jean King batting cleanup in our lineup today. She's coming up. Wonderful conversation with Jessica Mendoza. And also, stick with us. We're going to get high on the hogs. Big sweet.
4: There's no room for error in the Pac-12. There's always been great competition against our team in Oregon.
3: The adrenaline stays pumping. They always come out with energy. They're the type of charismatic team that knows how to tie their hitting together. I think
2: just treating every at-bat the same. If I don't get it done, someone behind me will get it done.
4: If we just bring
0: our best game, it's going to be something fun to watch. Oh, the adrenaline will definitely be pumping for our Thursday night throwdown series. It debuts this week, 8 Eastern on ESPN2, with Oregon and Arizona, followed by Clemson, Florida State, Oklahoma State, Florida State, and then we will have all three games for you in the Bedlam series on the ESPN networks. And that first one will be a Thursday night throwdown, May 5th, with the Pokes and the Sooners, and uh, coming up this uh uh, this week, uh, great uh, great time out in Pac-12 country, where, as Professor Smith has uh, shown us in science class, that uh, the balls tend to fly, a lot of home runs out there, so we're excited about that one. Of course, on deck right now, we got Billie Jean King. Stick around for that. But first, it's time to explain why three is the magic number. Hopefully, you're not just a fan of the podcast, but also of Schoolhouse Rock and De La Soul. And you know that somewhere in that ancient mystic trinity, three is the magic number, and we're talking about three games, Stanford and UCLA, three runs for the Bruins, three runs for the Cardinal Jess total the whole time, and for the first time since 213, Stanford gets a win over UCLA in the series. What is going on out west?
4: Beth, oh my gosh, talk about some old-school softball. I mean, this was all pitching and defense. And we've talked a lot on the podcast about Elena Vodder. She's that underrated, you don't hear her name a lot because Stanford doesn't come into the top 25. In fact, they just got in this this week. But the reason why they got the wins is Vodder has been lights out. She's got that drop ball, but she's had to rely a lot on her defense. She brought in the changeup for the first time this weekend more consistently. And when you think about the swing and miss that she will get, but also the defense that she has behind her, Sydney Huff, their second baseman, one of the most underrated second basemen, made some lights out plays. And when you look at just how they were able to do it Saturday, they had Reagan Krause and actually Tatum Boyd combined for the win Sunday. It was all Elena Votter and her being able to do what she does, but honestly keep those big UCLA bats and then getting the big hit. I mean, Taylor Ginlisberger, if you look at just her offensive production, but getting the big double, that's all that Stanford needed, but it comes with the assistance. I just love it. This is like throwing it back to like 1998. When you looked at these scores and the (laughs) reliance of pitching and defense.
0: Well, and and guys, guys, that also bumped UCLA out of the top spot and, the ascension now of the Arizona State Sun Devils into first place, they are in the driver's seat, still have a series to go with the Bruins coming up, but who wants to tackle the Sun Devils and what they've been able to do? Big bats out there, bro. Uh
3: yeah, it was really impressive. I got to go to the Arizona State Oregon Ducks game and I got to be a fan. I sat in the stands and I watched Arizona State hit and man, they can swing it. First of all, I think they're really, really balanced from both the right side of the batter's box and the left side of the batter's box. They have both sides that they can get you with the power numbers. They're batting a team batting average, 377. They can swing it. And I really love the power numbers they've added. Jasmine Rollin, the transfer from Missouri, hit a rocket shot right there out of the park. It left the park so quick. It was a straight line drive, barely Got high enough to get out of the park. She's got 12 home runs on the year. Jasmine Hill was the Pac-12 player of the week. She had a fantastic weekend. She's got 32 RBIs on the season. But just one through nine, this Arizona State team is so dangerous. And I also really like the performance from the freshman in the circle, Mac Morgan. I thought she did a really nice job going after the Oregon Ducks, really trying to jam up the righties, being fearless, thrown in the inside corner of the plate. And Amanda, you got to call that series. I know you were there. What did you think?
2: Yeah, I thought that it was really cold, really rainy, and I wouldn't have wanted to have been be a softball player playing in that game, to be quite honest. And some people were still wearing cotton sitting in the rain, which I just don't get how you can live in Oregon and wear cotton. But I digress. The ball yeah. came off Amanda, of their bat. Amanda, don't hit on my hometown. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not. I know that's your hometown. And you came to the game. I saw you with little Dylan. But the ball came off of their bat different, you guys. They hit the ball so hard. But Kayla, I wanted to follow you up about talking about their pitching staff. Their ERA is down from last season. So yes, 100% the strength of Arizona State is their offense. They scored 26 runs in three games. But Mac Morgan, Marissa Schultz, and Lindsey Lopez, they complement each other so well. Trisha Ford prides herself on putting together a pitching staff that don't all give the same look, and you can tell the lefty of Lopez. Schull came in relief in all three games and threw lights out, and then Mac Morgan gave them quality starts. So, absolutely, Arizona State can swing the bat, but I think that they're onto something in the pitching front too, and that they'll go as far as what their pitchers take them. I think.
0: Yeah, well, well, uh, well said, Amanda. And so here is the uh, here's the leader in the clubhouse right now for the name of this episode. I know we can do a little bit better than contentious cotton in Oregon. Uh, it sounds a little bit like uh, we're going to have a head to head tussle here. We got, you know, Oregon is well represented on the podcast. So uh, we'll see uh, what else we can come up with. Perhaps, Jess, you and Billie Jean King, the legend who will now hit cleanup in our lineup card, uh, have a few other great things to say for us. Well, as we all know, this
4: is the 50th year anniversary for Title IX, the biggest piece of legislation, the reason that we are all here today. And if you look at the godmother of that legislation, it is Billie Jean King. I mean, she's not only a tennis player, but she's been involved for every female athlete. There is nobody better than Billie Jean King. Billie Jean, obviously a big year for Title IX, celebrating the anniversary this year. If you go back, you know, June 23rd, uh, 1972, and obviously not just the day, but the moments that led up to that huge legislation that we live by today, what, what happened leading up to that?
5: I have four heroes and sheroes, really. Um, it's, it's really Congresswoman Edith Green out of Oregon. Um, who was called Mrs. Education. Uh, and then there was Dr. Bernice Sandler who helped her all the time and found a loophole. Uh, you had Patsy Meek from Hawaii. Uh, she's Congresswoman from Hawaii. And she really drafted a lot of it. And it's really, she is the mother of Title IX. They call her that. And then one of my heroes is Senator Birch Bayh from Indiana. And what people don't realize for us, it really is an educational amendment. It's not a sports amendment because women's sports is so visible, everyone thinks it's about sports. And in it, it's only 37 words, but in it, it has the word activity. And Senator Birch Bayh told me they debated whether to leave activity in or take it out. If they hadn't left it in, we would not have uh, sports scholarships. They left it in, they thought it was a catch all, just put it in, just, just get it in there, And so these four people are really, I think, responsible for Title IX uh, in in Congress. And thank God they left the word activity because really what it was about was about education in classrooms. We still to this day in high school, girls still do not get as many opportunities as boys did in 1972. We're getting close, but we're still not even there. So we're still got a ways to go. It's just amazing what it's done. And even in the 1996 Olympics, uh, which which was called, I think the Women's Olympics or the Women's Summer Olympics or whatever. The reason all of our teams won was because of Title IX. By 96, when we had our Olympics here in Atlanta, Georgia, that our women just absolutely knocked it out of the park. So it, it was a great Olympics. I was the captain of the women's tennis team. You know, every generation gets better. Well, if you want to see how things get better, the sports is a perfect place. Look how skilled they are compared to the old days. But they've had better coaching. They've had better competition. You know, people are paying attention. They're investing in them more. All those things add up to excellence. But I always like to, I think we always cheer for a team plus players that we love. But I am so, I grew up in team sports. Uh, Tennis was my last sport. I love team sports. I love basketball, softball. I mean, volleyball. I love all of them. And the thing I love about them, it's the team. It's about the team and and also um, representing a community or a school or something that's bigger than yourself. And I think that's important in life to teach young people about leadership and about inclusion. Actually, I wanted to bring up Joan Joyce, who's just passed away at 81, who was a great person and I knew her really well in the 70s and 80s and I love it when you know she pitched against Ted Williams and Hank Aaron and, and you know struck them out and I think she had 50 perfect games and I think it's it's amazing how good uh, how great she was but she was such a great
4: person there's a lot of young girls that watch this um listen to this what would be one of your biggest messages that you have for for them well, I
5: think this generation does it a lot better, but I think they really need to believe in themselves and uh, decide for themselves who they want to be and how they want to be and be their authentic self. And if you love sports, find a way to stay in them. You don't always have to play a sport either. You can be like what you're doing now with television. You can be a producer. You can be in um, PR. You can work for a team. There's just a thousand things you can do and stay around what you love. So I'd like you to think about that beyond just playing, as you grow up. Uh, but and just, um, just go for it. Let it rip. You know, just go for it. Just believe in yourself, and be a leader. Um, be think about others. Think about including them. Think about um, don't let others bully kids. Just you, you stand up. You know, stand up and speak up. That's really important. <laughs>
4: One of the things Billie Jean talked about in the interview we didn't get to is that her first sport was actually softball. She played a multitude of sports, but her heart and soul was always starting and beginning with our sport in softball. We've got more to come on
0: 7 Innings Podcast. we got the SEC and RPI coming right up. Podcast rolls on. Make sure to follow along on your social media at 7 Innings Podcast. Beth Mowens, Amanda Scarborough, Jessica Mendoza, Caleb Bro. And Michelle Smith, still to come, we've got a great feature on the growth of the Atlantic Coast Conference. Of course, we've got the mailbag as well. But if you're following along on your lineup card, we are now at number five, where we are high on the Hogs. Hey, Bro, the Razorbacks are sitting atop the SEC after a big series win over Auburn. And now Kentucky and Florida on the horizon.
3: Yeah, really impressive performances all weekend long from the offense from Arkansas. I'm going to tell you guys right now, the middle of the Arkansas offense is unbelievable. I mean, you're talking about Danielle Gibson, Lenny Malkin, Hannah Gamel and Taylor Ellsworth. And the four of them combined for nine plus home runs apiece, and they all sit above a 350 batting average. So it's just really impressive. And what they did to Arkansas this week, or excuse me, what they did to Auburn this weekend was really impressive. They hit nine home runs, they swept Auburn, no problem. And you know, there's so much to be said about this Arkansas offense and how good they are, and how they're just climbing in the SEC and getting better and better every single weekend. But You know, I look at Shanice Dels right here. She pitched seven innings in relief, and she gave up no runs. So, if they have the pitching to go along with their incredible hitting, I think they're going to be really, really dangerous in the SEC, and it's why they're sitting atop the conference right now. The Hogs are a team to be reckoned with right now.
0: Yeah, they are atop the SEC standings. They've actually got a little bit of breathing room between themselves uh, and Alabama and Kentucky, of course. The Crimson Tide went down to Gainesville uh, this weekend and took two of three from the Gators. So uh, Alabama and Florida, really good back and forth there. Uh, the the, uh, the Sunshine State showdown goes to the Crimson Tide. Florida does bounce back to get one. A lot of things came up in this series, Smitty, including pitch counts and length of games and All kinds of pitching changes. It's sort of become the norm now around the country when we have starters and middle relievers and on occasion, even closers.
1: Yeah, and it is interesting because I hear from a lot of coaches, a lot of pitchers around the country, and they're like, wow, if Montana Fouts is having a problem with the strike zone and and striking batters out and issues with the length of the game, like what, what is going on? I think a lot of us are very perplexed. Um, but I think it comes down to locating pitches, the ability to mix speeds, and we're finding that it's not always 70 plus miles an hour that's going to get people out. And so this Alabama-Florida series for me was very telling because it really just came down to execution. And in the first, two games, Alabama did a good job of executing and uh, Florida stubbed their toe a little bit. They had problems. They got people on, but then they couldn't couldn't move them into scoring position and then obviously couldn't plate them. They changed that, though, in game three, and I thought what was impressive about the Gators in game three was that they were down early. They didn't let that deter them. They still came back. It was a back-and-forth battle. Uh, Another game, almost three hours, but in the end, the Gators prevailed because they simply executed. They got hits with two outs, and they got hits with runners in scoring position. I was actually impressed. they the freshmen by the freshmen on both teams. Jenna Lord was outstanding for Alabama in game one. She had two, two RBI doubles, which was great. I mean, which uh, I think she had four RBI's in that game. She had seven maybe coming into the game. So, so that mm-hmm. was great to see. And then how about Reagan Walsh for Florida? She was outstanding as well yeah. in game three uh, against, uh, against Fouts. So I really love the way that some of the younger players on both these programs played, but it was a typical battle between Alabama and Florida.
2: Yeah, Michelle, I think that you hit the nail on the head with how the games are longer. And I think it's just because there is so much offense. I mean, Arkansas is a great example of that. And if we're high on the hogs, we have to be bullish on the Bulldogs too, right? They're swinging the bat. So while I know that they don't have that in-depth pitching um, that we see as some other teams, but the way that Georgia is swinging the bat has been so impressive. They scored 12 runs off of Ashley Rogers last weekend when they played Tennessee and I feel like this is an offense that can compete with the best of the best pitchers out there. And even the year that Lacey Fincher is having an SEC play, six home runs, 17 RBI. Mm-hmm. Like, Beth, I know that an SEC player of the year type conversation, she's a player that we're starting to mention a little bit that she might be one of the front runners.
0: Yeah, anytime you're uh, you're flirting with that triple crown, I think you're going to be in the discussion. We've, we've talked a little bit about Allie Shipman. We've talked a little bit about Danielle Gibson. Certainly, Skylar Wallace having a big impact. At uh, Florida, those are some of the names right now. We're at the midway point. A few of the teams are already past the midway point of the regular season in the Southeastern Conference. The race still very much on with uh, Kentucky and uh, the Bulldogs also right there in it. Which brings us to our discussion about RPI, not just the capital I, but also the I test and all the different analytics, all the different numbers, and of course that I test that the uh, selection committee will take a look at. Now that we are a month away. May 15th will be Selection Sunday. Of course, you can see the bracket unveiled right here on the ESPN Networks. We'll also have a special podcast, by the way, after the bracket comes out. But uh, already some jockeying around at the top of, of the RPI conversation. Smitty, yesterday it was Alabama. Today it's back to Oklahoma. Some folks' RPI even thinks Virginia Tech is right there. And of course, all about being in the top 16 to host a regional and being in the top eight to host a super regional.
1: Yeah, Beth, it is very interesting because when you look at all the RPI, the I tests, all those things, you also have to look at the adjusted RPI, which also brings in the SOS, the strength of schedule. And so when you look at Oklahoma, um, some of the naysayers, well, are, are they number one? I mean, obviously with the eye tests, I think they are. But some people might say, well, wait a second, their strength of schedule is only 44. Bama is in the two slot, um, but their strength of schedule is second. So it is kind of interesting. I'm always intrigued with uh, 7, 8, and 9 and, um, in the RPI because that's going to be the bubble for host of super regionals. And you can see the weighted definition of the RPI on how it counts. It's 25% of your D1 winning percentage, and then it just gets a little bit more and more complicated as you go in. So for me, though, the bubbles are always for who's going to host super regionals. So the 1 through 8, that, so that's 7, 8, and 9. And then 14 through 18. And that can be anywhere from Clemson, Texas, Oregon, Kentucky, and Georgia. So any of those teams from here on out have to continue to win big games in order to have a chance to host not just regionals, but super regionals. What do you guys think?
3: Uh, Well, Michelle, I look at the RPI right now, and something that stands out to me, and I know we're going to talk about it in a little bit, so I don't want to get too excited, but right now there's three teams in the top eight from the ACC, and when has that happened? I mean, we've seen a Big 12 own that with Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas, the SEC, obviously – The Pac-12, without a doubt, historically. But to see the ACC teams emerge into those spots is really impressive. And to have them have a chance to host in those top eight seeds can be the difference between them making it to the Women's College World Series and not because, as we all know, the home field advantage is one of the most important things that you can have heading into the postseason. Mm
0: -hmm. And when you look at those RPIs right there, you can see the Supers bubble would be teams like Duke, Florida, Oklahoma State, Tennessee, you want to get one of those top eight spots. The regional host bubble would be teams like uh, Clemson and Texas and Oregon and Kentucky that still have some work to do in the last month of the season to put themselves in a position where the committee has to say, look, these guys have the resume, and they pass the eye test, and we think they're one of the top eight. But, bro, you bring up a good point about three teams from the ACC. Amanda, why does that sound familiar? If I go back through the Rolodex of old seven-innings podcasts, what would we find there? Well, we would
2: uh, find me being right, kind of. Uh, Maybe a little bit or not yet if you look into the future of just predicting the ACC of two or three teams making it to the Women's College World Series. But Kayla, you said it. I mean, it's so important to be able to host a regional and to be able to host a super regional to increase your chances of making it to the World Series. And Duke, uh, who is the lowest in the top 10, is still sitting pretty pretty.
0: By the way, we like to introduce the youngsters to all kinds of new words and phrases so they can get on the Google machine. Rolodex would be one that a lot of people out there watching may have to look up on the interwebs. Hey, we still got more to come, including a terrific little feature coming up about the growth and the rise of the ACC. Is this the year, perhaps, that somebody other than Florida State and Virginia Tech, or perhaps with Virginia Tech is hosting Supers and getting to the Women's College World Series. Also, we got the mailbag still to come and shagging some of them skates. A lot of people think that the
4: ACC doesn't have a lot to offer. I know a lot of people discount what the ACC is. ACC is, I think, kind of slept on throughout the softball community. There's now four teams ranked in the top 20. That wasn't the case four years ago. I think back to it freshman year and Florida State seemed to just run away with it every year and nobody else
2: really put up too much of a fight. My freshman year, I remember we had a consecutive streak of winning ACC conference play games. Florida State dominated for a while, but now there are a lot of other really great programs on the come up. Add
5: in
4: Duke and Clemson has really taken uh, some other level up. The ACC is so special because
2: it's the fastest growing program not one team, the same team every year anymore.
4: Top to bottom, everybody's improving, everybody's up in their game, everybody's got a chance
1: to, to win a championship, and you couldn't say that about the ACC four or five years ago.
2: We have come to a part in the ACC's era where we are a powerful group. We're coming out with fire, some energy. And it's just really cool to see
4: ACC teams in Regionals, Super Regionals, and then in the College Road Series. We're just gritty and I think as a whole that we're really a conference to beat.
2: We're feared now and I think before there was definitely a different feeling about the ACC. Don't sleep on the ACC
5: towards postseason.
2: Yeah, so much I feel like going on um, in favor of the ACC's growth, including a new network with the ACC network, as well as a lot of new coachy, new coaches that are coaching these new teams. But um, really the bottom line, I just feel like this conference is growing from top to bottom. Amazing facilities, and they're getting really good pitching recruits. So when you look at the top four teams in the ACC, which is FSU, Virginia Tech, Duke, and Clemson—they not just have one pitcher; they have two pitchers that they both can rely on. Like FSU has Cat Sandercock and Danielle Watson. Virginia Tech has keely Rochard and that freshman Emma Lemley. Duke has Jayla Wright, who has stepped up because Shelby Walters has been a little bit injured for them, and Peyton Saint George. And then, of course, Clemson has Kegel and Millie Thompson. So when I look to these teams that are like gotten stronger they not only have the network they not only have the great coaches but they have a deep pitching staff that have proven themselves um, against non-conference opponents and conference opponents is uh alike kayla and and i know that like i like to talk about the pitchers kayla but you might have a different look as to why the acc is growing so much
3: yeah i i think i really want to harp on the fact that the ACC made the decision to invest in women's softball by adding Duke and Clemson. Like they went and they said, this is really important. This is going to grow the conference and our game. And, and they've showed out on that. And, you know, speaking of pitchers and hitters, I like the fact that somebody like a Valerie Cagle, who's the reigning ACC player of the year can do both. And I think that's what really elevates a conference too, is when you get superior athletes and, and you saw, it's just so cool you know, softball started on the Pac-12 on the West Coast and it's just slowly moving east. So the, uh, the SEC has kind of mirrored what the ACC is doing now where they've decided to, to make a change, to make the effort to make this conference better. And when you have uh, Duke and Clemson who are brand new to the sport that will move around for a few years and the impact that they're making early because of the recruits that they're going to go get, I think that just shows you why they're so successful early on. It starts with the athletes and those players that step on the field and make things happen.
0: Yeah, talent, coaching, facilities, that's that's the name of the game. That's uh, what led to the rise of the SEC. That is what is leading to the rise of the ACC as well. Great to see the investment from the top of these universities to uh, continue the growth of softball and the popularity on television. We've still got more to come on our 7 Innings podcast. Stick around, shag some stats with us. We'll answer some of your questions in our mailbag as well. Oh, it's getting close to achieving legendary status. The Shaggin' Stats segment on the 7 Innings Podcast. Glad you're back with us for the finale of this week's show. Called She-Rose in honor of our guest Billie Jean King today. Great to hear her talking about Title IX and the significance of all the women and some of the men that blazed the trail for all of us to enjoy playing athletics for the rest of our lives. Shaggin' Stats, if you're like us, you love to go foraging through those stat sheets and analytics to find uh, that nugget that uh, may be of use to somebody out there in the world of softball. We're going to start out with Kayla Bro. Shag a stat for us, Kayla.
3: Yes, I love hitting leadoff. Um, all right, my shag and stat, I'm going up to Northwestern. They played Ohio State this weekend. Jordan Rudd reached base safely in 12 of her 13 plate appearances, including three home runs, six RBIs. How how'd yourself a weekend, Jordan Rudd.
2: Okay, Kayla, I am going to bring it back to the circle with Peyton Gottschall from Bowling Green. She had a 14-inning complete game win with, we're going to have it, 14 strikeouts. (laughs) Wait, I said it wrong. I said 14 innings. It's 23 strikeouts. Dang it. I messed up my own stat. (laughs)
0: We'll, we'll put that down as a sacrifice. You moved over our leadoff hitter, and now it's up to the big bats behind you to bring them in. So, I, Jess, can you score Let's go. from second? Let's go.
4: <laughs> That's exactly what Arizona State would do, and that is my big stat is the offense of power that we've seen out west from them their 17 game winning streak they've outscored their opponents 77 to 25 43 home runs in those 17 games in fact they're ahead of arkansas those big bats in batting average and home runs per game only behind oklahoma on on base percentage
1: Oh, Jess, I knew you were going to talk about the big bat, so I decided to go to the circle. Doesn't (laughs) music just make you happy? It just makes me want to dance in my chair, so. Um, (laughs) I'm going to talk a little bit about the SEC pitching staffs, Okay, I think it's pretty amazing that this year, well, uh, the pitchers might not think this is amazing, but this year, the ERA in total for the SEC pitching staffs is up by a point, which is huge. And the base on balls, again, we're halfway through the season, but base on balls are up about 24% this year, therefore probably adding to those elevated
0: ERAs. Wow. What do you got, All Bima? Right, I, well, Michelle, I'm hoping. I'm hoping one of those pitchers serves me up a big old fatty so I can knock it out of the park and walk this shaggy stat <laughs> segment off. But since we, we're getting closer to the postseason and we're talking about RPI, I think this is an intriguing stat that shows the parity in the game and also shows that you cannot take your foot off the gas pedal this final month of the regular season and think that you're just going to coast into one of those spots to host a regional or a super. Because right now, Of the top 16 teams on the RPI list, seven of them against the top 25 have just a 500 record or worse. So there is still a lot of work to be done to try and secure one of those spots to host a regional or a super regional in the final month of the season on the road to the Women's College World Series. You know what? We like to take care of the fans on the program as well, so that means... Amanda has got the mailbag ready to go, or is it... What are we doing with this? Is it the email? Uh, How are we configuring this, Scarborough? Anyways, people got questions. We need to give them answers.
2: Yeah, is there such thing as a tweet mail? Because that's really what it is, because we got a lot of tweets <laughs> for Monday's mailbag. So, okay, this is Jason R., who sent this in. He has a very difficult last name, but what are the analysts' favorite thing about softball? What new trends do they see and enjoy, and are there any that they might not like? Who wants to take this one?
3: Um, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, where? How much time do we have in this segment? Like, how, what don't we love about softball? I mean, honestly. Um, personally, I'm super biased, but one of my favorite things that I love about softball is that simple, productive inning from an offense. So, leadoff gets on, steals second, the second batter gets on, and then you hit that three-run home run, and it's just like money to kick off a game. That is just pure, beautiful, uh, what I love about the game. And, I mean, I also like the rhythm of it. You know, the, you know picking a clean ball, the sound of the – the rock popping the glove, and just those things, those little tiny things that make our sport so rhythmatic and fun and special. I absolutely love Beth. What, what do you What do you got? Wow.
0: Well, you know what? We get the benefit of being there live and in person, and sitting in the press box. You know, you'd be surprised for someone that talks for a living. One of my favorite things to do is a term we call laying out. And we have such great crowds now around the country at these softball stadiums. My favorite part is you just kind of put your head out the window of the press box. You don't say anything, and you just let the crowd, the, the sounds of the crowd, the cheering, the screaming for their team is awesome when our directors and our producers in the truck just cut around and show the amazing atmosphere of Scarborough. Oh, I hear them now. I hear them now. I'm laying out. <laughs>
2: Hear it I just laid out for a second I didn't forget to talk um, I love the speed of the game love it I love that the, a defender has to be perfect I love the steals that Kayla talked about like I just love that you you really have to play pretty clean on defense to be able to get an off uh, an offensive opponent out so I love the speed of the game not, and I'm not just talking about like a two hour time window which we love that too but I mean the actual pace of the game is is really something I always look forward to anybody else all right, go to the next question. Here we go. Um, this is from Ashley McDowell. Which teams are better than their record
0: show?
1: Ooh. All
0: right, I got I got one for us. How about the Washington Huskies? Um, you know, I, I think when all is said and done at the end of the season, a healthy Gabby playing a healthy lineup, they are going to be a tough out. Here's another team. They're, their record's still pretty good, but I think they're going to be very dangerous at the end of the season, and that's the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame. How about wins against LSU, Texas, Duke, and Northwestern already on the resume? Smitty?
1: Oh, well, BMO, actually, I'm going to make Amanda very happy. And I'm going to say Texas AM with Haley Lee and Mackenzie Hardzot, they have been outstanding. They're 24 and 14. So when those two players are really bopping and pitching it, they can be very, very good. But you can't count out Missouri and LSU, also two teams that are very good with 15 and 16 losses, respectively. What do you think, Amanda?
2: Yeah. I think you had a great choice, Michelle. Way to go! I'll also throw and I was going to say Washington too, Beth. you I think you're right on with that. But UCF, who is yeah. 34 and 10 on the year, and also Tennessee is 26 and 12. Um, so just want to throw those two teams in there too. So um, final question okay. here from Rebecca Ekwal. With the advancement of players and bats, along with all the home runs being hit in today's game, do you see a need for field dimensions to become larger? And Jess, I know that this is a question I've seen on Twitter a lot because of all the offense and home runs, including a massive Lacey Fincher home run that she hit last weekend. (laughs) Uh, But what's your stance on this? What do you think? Heck
4: yes! Oh my goodness. And we saw it in Oklahoma City, right? I mean the dimensions changed. They brought up the walls, the fences to be higher as well. I mean, you you nailed it. And to me, it isn't to minimize the home run. I mean, let's be real. Like when you get a hold of one, like you're hitting it hit 275. I don't care. It's also to increase the power of the outfield, right? To be able to chase down balls, more doubles, more triples. It absolutely grows the
0: game.
3: Okay, I disagree, Jess. I'm sorry. I think keep the game the same it is. I think it's exciting. The power numbers make it better than college baseball because it's more exciting. You're going to see more long balls leave the yard. And, you know, for somebody that, you know, really struggled to get the ball right over the fence, I'd like to keep the home run fence (laughs) where it's at. So the question I think
2: lies, guys, is I've also seen this on Twitter. If you make the field bigger, do you need to make the base pass a little bit longer, too? I'm not saying that's my idea, but oh. somebody threw it out there just to something to think
0: about. Yeah. Well, and it gives us one more opportunity to say that if the fences were actually a little closer, Smitty might have had more than nine home runs in one season, which was her single-season high for home runs. But if there's more outfield grass, Bro and Mendoza, there's more room for you guys to make those amazing diving catches out there. So I, I think probably the schools would might be a money issue for a lot of folks. Hey, we've had a great time on the show. Thanks so much to Billie Jean King. Thanks so much to all of you for tuning in. And don't forget... The Thursday night throwdown schedule starts this week. Oregon at Arizona from out in the desert. And then we'll have trips to Florida State, Florida State, and Bedlam on May 5th for you. Our Thursday night throwdown series. Mendoza, you're going to be with us in the desert. What do you think? Oregon, Arizona, what to look for real quick.
4: Offense. It's in Tucson. Come on. That's what we've been talking about. If you're getting out west of Pac-12, Of
0: course, we're kicking it out, out in Arizona. Oh, looking forward to seeing our buddies, Caitlin Lombardi out there for that one. I'm Beth Moens, Michelle Smith, Kayla Bro, Amanda Scarborough, and Jessica Mendoza. We will see you out there on the road to the Women's College World Series.